It's November 18th, 2008, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. I apologize for the long, long delay in getting another episode up. I've been busy with a variety of different projects, that all of which are helping to pay the bills around here. And so it hasn't really allowed for much time to schedule interviews, conduct interviews, much less to sit in front of the computer and edit and, uh, and upload an episode. But i finally gotten around to it, and... Uh, the show today, I hope, is going to make up for, for the very long delay. Um, before we get on to our interview, one of the projects I've been working on is an instructional videotape on lighting and the use of flash. Uh, it was a personal project that I worked along with my team at Alas Media, and we're, we're really pleased with the results, and right now we're just in the process of getting um, marketing uh, revolved around it so we can get it out there and actually... Uh, uh, put the word out, and one of the ways I'm going to be doing that is right here on the show. I'll have a link for the uh, for the uh, for the instructional videotape on the website, and you'll be able to check it out. And within the next couple of weeks, I'll have a short uh, video commercial, I guess you'll call it, for lack of a better word, uh, available so you can check out some of the content that uh, was included on in the, in the video. So I hope that'll be of interest to you, and uh, hope you'll check it out. Well, today's guest, though, is Rick Smolin, and most of you will know Rick from his books. He is the founder of uh, the publishing entity that helped create the Day in the Life series. Um, and those came out, started coming out, I think, in the 80s, and they were real big forces in in what photography could be, especially in the publishing uh, publishing area. Uh, photography books have never been particular big mon- money makers. So when this book was first proposed, there were a lot of scoffers in terms of, you know, who would want to buy this huge book of, of photography on a on a particular country, the first of which was Australia. But after that first fa- first book came out, the whole series just came out, including a day in the life in America, and 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 they've really grown to be a real prominent face in terms of not only photography books, but the power of photography and not only to be able to tell a, a, a story, but to be able to tell the story of, a, of an entire country. And I think anyone who's seen these books is always, you know, drilled at the idea of being one of these photographers who has the opportunity to go out there and spend a whole day photographing alongside the best photographers in the world and I have to I have to admit I've been one of those photographers and though I have who's uh, aspired to it and I've never been lucky enough to participate but it was really a great opportunity to talk to Rick to find out about how this whole process came into being and and how it's evolved over the years because he continues to do that including uh, uh, with his latest project America at Home. I have to apologize for the sound quality on this particular episode. He actually was in his car. Uh, he was in transit to an important meeting that he was having. So you'll be hearing a lot of stuff in the background, including his GPS. Uh, but I think despite those those issues with sound, um, I think that you are going to enjoy the, the interview. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Rick Smullen. Uh, yeah, pretty good. I'm still driving, but it's pretty quiet because we're going like one mile an hour here. Oh, 
Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry about this. When I when we set this up last week, I didn't realize I was going to be. There's a, a huge event tonight in Silicon Valley that's sort of like everybody in the valley is going to it, the Tech Museum. Oh, okay. okay. And uh, um, it's just a real opportunity to, you know, um, sort of just meet a lot of interesting people. So that's what we're doing. All right. Well, we'll just just jump right into it. I'm already uh, I'm already recording, so we'll try to just make okay, the best good. of our time. Great. Thank um, you for having me on. Podcast. Oh man, it's it's a real pleasure to to have you on the show. I've been following you know all the work that you've done over the years, and it's really a, a wonderful opportunity for me to talk to you. But um, let's let's start with your beginnings as a photographer. I know you started as a as a as a journalist, but tell me about um, your beginnings. Well, you know, I actually started doing the yearbook in high school and in college. I never had any formal photography training. Um, something I've always kind of regretted because a lot of my friends who um, uh, either study photography or start out in newspapers are always a lot faster than I am when, when it comes to shooting. Um, I, I literally took my yearbook to Time magazine the year I graduated, and uh, a good friend of mine knew the editor of Time, and uh, I actually walked in there uh, and, you know, sort of embarrassed that I had a you know, little portfolio, but mostly pictures and my yearbook. And to my astonishment, this guy actually gave me an assignment on the spot. I found out later he had a, his name was John Derniak, wonderful guy, and he had a, a history, which I was unaware of at the time, of finding a, a young, hungry photographer and giving them assignments they weren't in, in any way qualified for, and seeing if they would sink or swim. So literally, you know, my second assignment was to shoot a cover story for Time. I'd never even shot any color before. I was I was only a black and white shooter. You must have been terrified. Um, <laughs> I, I was so frightened. And I, uh, the, the the stupid part about it is I actually had a week knowing I was going to be shooting the story. And I had people like Doug Kirkland and David Burnett who offered to teach me to light because I knew I was going to have to shoot color. And I was in some kind of denial I, I, what I thought I was going to do. But the assignment was to photograph a woman named Op, uh, Sarah Caldwell, a very famous opera conductor. And she had a history of eating photographers alive. She hated being photographed. Um, and I was also unaware of this. So I showed up at her house in Boston and... I kept thinking it would be a nice day. I'd take her outside and shoot her in open shade. And when I got to her house, it was just pissing with rain, dark, dismal, horrible, you know, middle of winter. And I just knew I'd blown it. Here was my huge opportunity once in a lifetime, and I totally screwed it up. And just as I was about to, like, leave after, you know, I, could, I, I unscrewed all the light bulbs in the house, trying to shoot with tungsten film. It's just awful. There's this knock on the door, and a CBS film crew showed up, they're doing a documentary about her, and they walked in and lit the entire house for me. I mean, for them, but you know, I was just sort of hanging out in the shadows. So um, I was just, I, you know, I just couldn't believe my luck. So I, uh, I stayed after they left. I had heard her on the phone uh, trying to order a car for the next day and being told that there were no cars available. And so I asked her if I could be her chauffeur. You know, if I if I could just drive her car for the week or rent a car and drive it for her. Uh, and I, and I, was, I was 21 at the time, and I think I looked about 12. And uh, so you know, I went from, here's this woman who hates photographers, and I called Time Magazine and said, I'm going to be spending the next entire week with her, 24 hours a day, you know, driving her throughout uh, New England. Um, and it ended up being a cover story. They were very happy with it. And so that sort of launched my, my career. But I, I always felt, and you're probably, I'm sure, I'm sure you've heard this from a lot of photographers, like, I was a phony, and I was going to be discovered at any moment. Mm. It, that I really, I didn't know what the hell I was doing, and it was sort of, I just felt I was every time I got an assignment, I would go from elation, 
that someone was giving me the assignment to terror, saying, "Okay, this is where I finally get caught." Yeah, but I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. Does that, that does um, that feeling ever go away? I don't think it does. I mean, I think uh, I'm an adrenaline junkie, so I actually think I am much better when I'm in a state of of partial terror. Um, you know, sort of was it to a man about to be? You know, sort of like when you're about to get hung. Somehow everything becomes sort of hyper real. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that when I actually screw up is when I get overconfident. When I when I think I actually do know what I'm doing. You're you're covering a lot of major news events. Which ones gave you the the biggest watch? Which which were the ones that you always looked forward to the most? Well, I never liked showing up at the same events as, as a zillion other photographers. Um, you know, I, I didn't like being part of the pack. I didn't like going down to the White House to cover news, you know, press conferences where you feel like you're, you know, a bleacher. You know, you're on a bleacher with four thousand other photographers with, with, you know, all shooting the same pictures. Um, I, I sort of liked assignments where I felt like you know, maybe if the pictures were published, they might make a difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was incredibly fortunate. Uh, you know, I. I there's a, a very famous photographer named Dirk Halstead who shot mm-hmm. the most covers in a magazine of any photographer, I think, in history. And uh, Dirk was given one of these PR junket um, tickets to, to go on the first nonstop Pan Am flight to Tokyo in 1976. And uh, he didn't want to go because it was just, you know, gripping grain. It was just, you know, officials shaking hands. But I'd never been out of the United States. I've been to Europe. I've never been to Asia. So he gave it to David Burnett. Burnett didn't want to do it. So Burnett called me and said, how would you like to go to Japan, and, you know, I said, great. We were all part of a photo agency called Contact in New York City, mm-hmm. sort of like, in, which is created in, in admiration of Magnum, Blackstar, and some of these other big photo agencies. Um, so um, I went over to Japan thinking I'd be back on Friday, and I stayed for 11 months. I mean, basically, once I got over there, I just fell in love with Asia, and, um, you know, time knew I was there, and people knew I was there in the New York Times, and so I kept getting assignments because they didn't need to fly me over there. One of the things I always did was the moment my assignment was over for any of these publications, I would stay on um, and uh, you know basically enterprise, find my own stories, pitch them to magazines back in the states, um, just you know shoot stock photography of of you know life in these countries until another assignment came along. So um, I lived in hotels for about five years. So I literally left on a Monday and more or less came back five years later. I mean, I came back a couple times during that period, but. I never had an apartment. I just slept, slept on my sister's couch in Soho in New York. And um, I, one of the things that struck me so much about being a young photographer um, in Asia was that the other photographers I'd run into, you know, Philip Jones Griffiths and J.P. LaFont and people like that, Mikey Mashida, um, even we, if we were competing, if we were representing competing publications, that was your family out there. Mm. You know, when, when you showed up at a news event, when you were shooting, it was every man or woman for themselves. But in between, there was so much camaraderie, and and you know people would really look out if you got sick or if there was a bus leaving, you know, for a news event an hour earlier. People would make sure that you woke up, or if you needed a lens, or you needed to borrow film. It was really about a hundred men and women who would show up repeatedly at these different you know events. So. Um, you know, one day I was sitting around at a bar with Philip Jones Griffiths and a bunch of other photographers, and I said, you know, wouldn't it be cool if we could do a project where, you know, we, the photographers, kind of, you know, conceptualized it, edited it, laid out the book, you know, like, like and the idea was a day in the life of Australia where I was mm-hmm. living at the time. And everybody said, you know, great, you, you go organize it, we'll all come. And so I went to 35 publishers around the world 
and you know the best photographers let loose for one day in Australia, and they just sort of laugh me out of their office and say, "What a stupid idea! Who on earth is going to pay fifty dollars, you know, for a book of photographs on a day that nothing happens by a bunch of your friends?" So I, I couldn't get any backing from the publishing world. So I went to um, the Prime Minister of Australia, who I photographed quite a few times. He he really liked photographers a lot. He was sort of a closet photographer. I think he was very jealous of the freedom that he, he thought that we had compared to his life, which was all very prescribed. prescribed. Every, every moment of his day was organized. Mm. Um, and I said, I want to do this book about your country, but nobody will give me the time of day in the publishing world. But would you pay for it? You know, could the Australian government back it? And uh, I said, you know, he, he said, look, I can't, I can't fund a project like that, but I will help you. And he came up with this idea, which is, you know, something... Basically, this one conversation, it's something that changed my entire life. He basically said, you should tell people that what you're doing is the Olympics of photography. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, you know, you're inviting, you know, the best photographers from 30 different countries to all come to Australia, and you're letting them loose, and you tell me it's a collaboration, but he said, you know, I've been around you guys, and I know you're always trying to outdo each other. So, you know, uh, I said, and what, what, what am I asking these companies for? He said, well, you know, go. To, I'll introduce you to Qantas Airlines, and you should ask them for airline tickets, and you should go to Kodak and ask for film. And there's this guy, Steve Jobs, who just started this computer company. This is, you know, 30 years ago. Mm. Um, and he said, you should ask them for free computers. And I said, and why would they give me all this stuff? He said, because you're going to put their logo in your book. You're going to you know, give them a 1,000 copies of the book. You're going to talk about them when you go on the Today Show. And I said, I'm going to go on the Today Show. And he goes, look... <laughs> He said, look, you have a really cool idea. And he said, okay, the publishing community doesn't get it, but he said, I think it'd be great for Australia. I will give you a letter introducing you. So I went off, you know, dutifully and knocked on doors. And to my astonishment, everybody not in publishing got so excited about the book. You know, the people in publishing didn't particularly, but um, we, we didn't raise any money, but we got, you know, airline tickets and computers and hotel rooms and rental cars. I couldn't pay the photographers. Everyone came to Australia. I couldn't even find a publisher. Mm. And the book ended up becoming the number one book in Australia. I mean, it, it, it literally was the best-selling book of the year. Um, and it started... I thought I'd go, go back to being a photographer. I love being a photographer. But it never happened. It just... We started getting called from... Calls from American Express saying, could you do Japan? And then the King of Spain's office called and said, could you do a day in life of Spain because we lost Disney to the French? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and and you know, the thing I'm the most proud about with all the projects we've done is that uh, you know they're really showcases for great photography. We do, we, you know, we have a whole team of people that come up with assignments. But uh, probably some the words that most photographers never hear when they work is you know if you find something more interesting, you can scrap the assignment and just come back with great pictures. Mm. I mean, when was the last time any editor said that to you? <laughs> Do you think that's the great appeal uh, of, of the projects and why, you know, photographers are, have always been eager to, to participate in it? I think there's a couple of things. I think the camaraderie is great. It's sort of like the annual gathering of the tribe. We all get to see each other. And there's, you know, I always encourage everyone to bring their work. So, I mean, we usually have one night when we all get together where everybody you know, gets in a huge room. And sometimes we invite the public or friends, and you've got, you know, five or hundred people in a room, and, and photographers take turns getting on stage and showing works in progress or things they couldn't get published or getting feedback. Um, there's been lots of marriages, divorces, babies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, put a hundred photographers in a hotel, and, you know, you know what happens. 
Yeah, and, and, um, and it's almost analogous to you know to hurting cats. You know, it, it, it is. It is. <laughs> how do you, how do you, how do and, you, you know, manage that? I mean, you got all those personalities, all those egos, all those demands, and you're trying to produce all this coordinate all these photographers to produce all these shots in 24 hours. It's, it would seem overwhelming. Well, you know, as I said, we have a team of people that spend months in advance getting ready for them. So it's, it, you know, on the one hand, it's tremendous planning and it's complete serendipity. It's, you know, once, once they get out into the field, we, we just hope they come back with things that will, you know, that will fascinate people. And a lot of the photographers, I remember Jody Cobb and David Allen Harvey, a couple of people told me they thought that, some of the best pictures they'd ever taken were on these one-day or one-week projects because when you know that you're up against 99 of your peers, you know, no matter how many prizes, no matter how famous you are or how many covers of National Geographic or Time, when you know that, that you've got, you know, <laughs> all these other people, the best in the, in the, you know, Sebastian Salgado and Jim Nackway and, you know, there's just so many photographers that, that you know, have just, you know, sort of thrown themselves into the book. So, you know, one, there's the fun of it. Two, there's the competition. Three, is the freedom to be creative. Four, is the fact that, you know, 20 years later, 30 years later, these books are still sitting on people's coffee tables. You know, when you work for a magazine, even National Geographic, you know, the work, I mean, Time Magazine, whatever, that gets thrown away pretty quickly. No one ever throws their geographics away. But these, I'm always amazed to visit people who I don't even know. And there's a book that we did 20 years ago still on their coffee table. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we do basically one project a year, so we're really obsessive about going on press and the paper. I mean, the, la the books we've been doing about the last 10 years, we've been printing on matte paper with a spot varnish over the photograph. So the, it's really easy on the eyes. You know, the pictures look great because they have this sort of fifth color spot varnish on them, but the paper itself is this wonderful thick matte paper that is very easy to read. Um, you know, most publishers are... are churning out 60, 100 books a season, mm -hmm. we do one a year, so we can sort of be very obsessive about every aspect of, of it. I, you know, it it's, funny, it, it's funny now, you know, now that you've got Photoshop and the ability to go in and um, you know, fix the color balance and, and open up shadows, I look at the old books that we used to do and they just look so bad to me. <laughs> mm. You know? Um, you know, they, they, they just, you know, I just, I'm amazed now at how well they sold and I look at them and say, "Oh my God! Look at you know, we look at look at the color cast in this photograph, or whatever, you know, whatever the problem is." How, um, how has so, the digital technology helped you in terms of managing the hundreds of thousands of images that you have to go through? Because I suspect that editing and making your selections and winnowing them down is probably one of the biggest challenges of the project. Well, it's funny now. It, it almost even though it was only about probably five, seven years ago that we did the last project where there was. Uh, you know, where we were using film. But what's amazing to me is that it used to be all done by hand. We were, you know, hand stamping pictures, hand editing, you know, projecting with a slide projector. Now, when the photographers submit their work, um, they, before, they, before they submit the picture to us, um, it has to be... Um, it has to be... Uh, they, they have to basically, you know, um, attach... The assignment number, they have to write a caption for it, they put the location, so all the pictures now show up in our database pre-indexed, which is just incredible. So, you know, we can basically sift and sort the photographs 
uh, by time of day, by location. There's just there's like so many things that we're able to do. Mm. One of the you you were one of the first to ever incorporate a multimedia CD with with a book, yeah. and yep. uh, now with with the web playing an increasing role in the dissemination of images and and and, and being a, another medium for sharing photos and sharing stories. How has that changed what you're doing, uh, particularly with your company now? Well, it's kind of ironic. It seems at the exact same time that traditional markets for photography seem to be disappearing. You know, Life Magazine's gone, you know, um, Parade Magazine. You know, there's very few magazines that really publish photojournalism now in any serious way other than National Geographic to the United States. Um, and then all of a sudden you've got the web now where you have sort of infinite space. You can add the photographer's narrative and music. You can do Ken Burns kind of, you know, uh, transitions in your photographs. So it's, it's kind of a weird combination of, of uh, you know, lack of lack of uh, old media and, and so much new media that it's unbelievable. The, the sad part about it is that it's very hard for most of my friends who are photojournalists to make a living right now as a photographer. I mean, 20 years ago, the day rate was $400 a day when you worked for Time or the New York Times, and now it's like 350 I mean, it's actually gone down. Hmm. It's just so appalling. Um, it's 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 very frustrating, and I don't know what the the outcome is going to be. I mean, you know, probably 20 years ago there was a finite number of magazines and publications that bought photography, and there's a pretty small number of photographers who I think were sort of world class, world caliber. And now there's a lot of great photographers, and there's this sort of infinite uh, number of of uh, you know uh, places to buy your photographs. Yeah, you know, just sell pictures. So. You mentioned Dirk Halstead, and he's a big proponent of, of using multimedia, you know, using video, using, you know, Final Cut, using still images, and in order to tell a more sort of a complete story beyond what you're capable of doing with, with stills. Do you see yeah. that, you know, especially with these cameras like the Nikon D90 and the EOS, you know, the, the Mark II, uh, the 5D Mark II coming out, where video yeah. is becoming a component of actually a still camera, do you, do you think that having that capability and the technology is going to be the way that, that photographers now increase the likelihood of, of being able to increase their income by be, being able to be more than just still photographers, but basically multimedia storytellers? You know, I've taken Dirk's course, the Platypus you know, workshop, which yeah. is really fun and interesting. And, and uh, you know, I think it's an important skill set to have. Um, it's a little bit distracting you know, trying to figure out, you know, whether you want to be a still photographer or you want to be a you know, video photographer. It seems like there's so, there's so many different directions to go, and I, I I think it's good to have that skill set. I, I'm just not sure, you know. Again, maybe I'm just dating myself. I sort of I sort of liked the decisive moment. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I, I like this idea that that there was a you know, a, a moment at which the photograph is being taken. Video, to me, if you think of all the great events, the, the way that we, as a culture, remember history, you know, the Eddie Adams picture of the street shooting in Saigon or Nick Ood's picture of the napalm bombing in Vietnam or, you know, just, there's just so many classic pictures where there were video crews there photographing the same thing and yet it's the still picture that we remember. Mm. I mean, you know, at our weddings, you know, we have people shooting video but it's the pictures that I think we all remember are, are sort of frozen moments. So, um, 
I think for a long time people thought when radio, uh, when TV came out, that radio would disappear, and that when you know VCRs came out, nobody would go to the movie theaters again. And um, I think each of these sort of new medias are are uh, you know iterative, not re- not replacing old media. Yeah. So I mean, I, if you're asking me, do, do I think young photographers should learn how to use video cameras and do storytelling and do narration and do editing? Yes, absolutely. But I still think the still image is the is the anchor point, mm. and the others are there to kind of you know expand it. I, I like the Ken Burns feeling of adding movement to a still picture, but I like the fact that it's still a still photograph. Yeah. Well, tell me about your your company and about the, your latest project. I believe it's America at Home. Yeah, the most recent project we did was America at Home, and uh, my daughter uh, is now eight, but she was seven last year, and she went for her first sleepover down the street from our house. And uh, when she came back the next morning, she was very excited that she survived. She was very nervous about it, even though this was a girl she'd played with after school every day. And we were walking back sort of hand in hand, and I said, Phoebe, what's, what's the one thing you're going to remember the rest of your life about your first sleepover? And she leaned over, and she kind of whispered. She said, Dad did you know that other people's lives are different than ours? <laughs> I started laughing. I said, what do you mean? And she goes, like, you know, Charlotte's mother let us eat Cheerios for dinner. And, you know, she went to this whole sort of laundry list of, of, you know, things that had, you know, stood out to her about this. In any case, uh, uh, Phoebe sort of planted the seed of um, doing a project where we could, you know, send a team of photographers out all over the world and uh, so all, all the United States, and sort of on one day, sort of capture what life is like um, across the country, you know, ceremonies and rituals and all the things that uh, sort of, you know, comprise uh, you know, life in America. Mm. So that's what we did. You know, we, uh, we, uh, we had not only professional photographers, but uh, tens of thousands of amateurs as well. And uh, it, it's one of the most interesting books I've ever worked on. Um, so anyway, we did this project where we had, um, you know, 100 photographers all over the United States for a week. And then in addition to that, we um, invited the public to participate. And one of the most interesting things about the whole project is that um, after the book came out, we actually uh, invited people to um, upload photographs of their family and friends. And when you get the book, you can actually... Uh, put yourself on the cover so that the, you're actually featured on the cover of this amazing book. That's awesome. Um, we also had writers like Amy Tan and Matt Graining from The Simpsons and uh, um, David Pogue from The New York Times write really cool essays um, sort of about the concept of home, um, which was very well received by the public as well. So, you know, I feel like I'm sort of, you know, when I grew up, Life Magazine was what I aspired to. That was sort of my dream, you know, publication. I worked for Life once before it went out of business. Mm-hmm. Um, but my my fantasy in doing these books today is is sort of, you know, that they would sort of be in that same realm of uh, the old Life Magazine. You know, where, the, where it sort of gives you a view into the world, into people's lives, and... and uh, um, you know, it, the, the phrase that we always use to describe our projects is extraordinary pictures of ordinary events. So that, you know, you think you know about something, then you, you turn the page, you go, wow, I can't believe this. 
One of the things that we did with America at Home that's also been very well received was, in addition to, you know, great photography and really good writing, you actually learn about the people in the photographs and feel like you know them. Um, you, um, we, we found some really interesting statistics. So, like for example, we found out that 20% of American school children speak a language other than English at home, um, or you know, um, the majority of Americans live within 50 miles of where they were born. And the thing, the one that I thought was the funniest was um, that 80% of men would remarry their wives, but only 50% of wives would remarry their husbands. <laughs> but that was rather telling. Um, and, <coughs> excuse me, um, I, I think that these books are a little bit like, you know, time capsules, like, you know, 100 years from now. Someone's going to pick up this book and, and learn more about the fabric of American life than maybe the world of advertising provides or um, Hollywood, which is all, it's also in a fictionalized and fantasy versions mm-hmm. of, of you know, our lives. Um, so my, my hope is that these books actually will become more interesting as time goes on rather than feeling dated. <laughs> and how important we'll do you see, think it we'll is to have true or not. How important do you think? Sorry? Is, how important do you think it is that you know, especially today, where everyone is you know putting images on on the web using Flickr and so much content and information is gathered over a computer. How important do you think it still is to have a a photo book, something that you actually hold in your hands? You know, it's funny. I actually have had this conversation with Sergey Brin at Google a couple of times. Um, uh, you know, because he says, "Why don't you just put a picture on the web? Why do you have to cut down trees and?" And you know, and and create this expensive product, just give it away on the internet. And I don't know about you, but I don't actually find it very pleasant to um, read a book um, on my computer or um, you know look at uh, you know how many pictures, how many pages of photographs are you going to look at um, on a website versus you know looking at a book and and putting a post-it note in it or holding it up and showing it to a friend. Um, I just think it makes a, an enormous difference when you're actually looking at, at a, you know, holding a real book in your hands. Um, so, um, you know, again, maybe I'm just dating myself, but I, I kind of feel like um, I, I think books are going to be here for a long time to stay. Um, I, I sort of, I'm a little bit prejudiced that way because my mother was a librarian and my father-in-law is Elliot Erwitt, you know, the great photographer mm-hmm. who I grew up admiring and my dad was a photographer in World War II. My, both of my brother-in-laws are photographers. My sister-in-law is a photographer. So I'm the wrong person to ask about <laughs> books and photography because that's my whole world. Yeah. Um, well, well, I, don't, I don't know how much longer there's going to be a market for photography books, but I certainly hope I'm going to be part of the creation of those for a long time to come. Yeah. Well, the last question I always ask is that, and it's probably going to be a particular challenge for you considering how many photographers you know, but I always ask uh, each guest to recommend um, one photographer that they, suggest, that, that they suggest our listeners go out and explore. So who would that be for you and why? Well, uh, you know, it sounds very self-serving, but I guess I would suggest my father-in-law because I think, I mean, I grew up, I saw the first book, you know, featuring Elliot Erwitt's photography when I was 16, and, and that made me want to become a photographer. Uh, I think he has a, a sense of wit and uh, sort of an economy 
a style. He's still finding photographs he shot 40 years ago or 50 years ago that he's never noticed that, that he shot. He keeps finding them on contact sheets. Um, he's 82 years old now or, and uh, is still opening exhibits in Milan and Tokyo and Rio and, you know, Perpignan. He's just so unbelievably alive and interested in the world. And, you know, I, I find that the photographers I like the best when you meet them in person, they're a little bit like children. They saw that sort of wide-eyed, wow. Mm -hmm. yeah, you know, know, they that. still see the world as someplace fresh and unique and different, and they're not jaded and cynical and bitter, most of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that's reflected in their photography. So uh, there's a wonderful book. It's way out of print. You can probably get it in a Libris called The Masters, Contemporary Masters of Photography, written by Sean Callahan about Elliot Erwitt, about Annie Leibovitz, about Mary Ellen Mark. It was a wonderful series, almost like magazines with hard covers that were done back in the 70s. And uh, they sort of wove together the photographer's personal life with um, their images. So you actually understood the context of how they got these jobs. They showed you their contact sheets, told you what was going on in their lives while they were shooting these pictures. And I think, you know, to anybody aspiring to be a photographer, curious about the world of photography, that's a great place to uh, just start. So it's the Contemporary Masters of Photography. I think it was published by some company called Alscog, something like that. Um, but you can probably get them for 50 cents each <laughs> um, on a Libris, but worth every penny. Well, good. Well, thank you so much, Rick. It was just a real pleasure to have you on, on the show, and, and, and thank you so much for finding some time in your busy schedule for us. Well, thank you, and please excuse me for all the noise in the background. Uh, today just turned out to be a very hectic day, but it's an honor to be on your show. Thank you again for joining me for another episode. If you have any comments or suggestions, please email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com or post a message on the blog at thecandidframe.com. Till next time, this is Ivarian X. Pirello, and this is The Candid Frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com.